If you got your Bibles, open to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 17, and then we're also going to jump over to Proverbs chapter 11. Really great verse there too, but we're still going to base out of 2 Samuel 17, continuing to move forward in our story of the life of Absalom and uh, where we've gotten to in the story now. Absalom is king. He's making some bad decisions. David, remember, is on the run. He's had to go all night with his, uh, with his family and those that are following with him. And they've crossed the Jordan River, but they are completely and totally exhausted. And so um, the place that we get to in the story, we're about to find out that it is just a mess. The country is divided, all right? It's a very complicated situation. David's household is divided. I mean, it just is a mess. There's some faith pieces attached to both sides. I mean, I'm telling you read some of this, and some of it sounds very similar to what we're navigating today. And so uh, I'm telling you, very, very uh, special for us as we navigate this this morning. And hopefully this will speak to each one of your hearts the way it's spoken to mine. Our study today starts with this question. Have you ever had to untangle something before? Okay, have you ever had to untangle something before? Let's just be honest real quick. How many of you have a drawer that is filled with phone chargers and with uh, cables and USB ports and whatnot. How many of you have that big tangled mess in your house? Raise your hand. Not very organized people today, uh, this morning. And uh, also liars, I think, in this room. There it is, just kidding. So here's the deal. If you've ever come across that tangled mess before, all right, there's a point where you look at it and you just go, how much time is it going to take me to do this? And how much would it cost me to just replace it, right? You've had that thought before. If you haven't had that with phone cords, maybe you've at least had that with Christmas lights before. Have you had that thought with Christmas lights before? There you go. A few more, a few more honest people in this room. With Christmas lights, this is what I typically do. I'll plug them in. And if they don't turn on all the way, then that's when you go, maybe it's worth four bucks at Walmart just to buy some new ones. You know what I mean? Rather than eight hours of my life untangling them and checking every single bulb to figure out which one works and which one doesn't, right? The whole deal is when you come across something that is tangled, you run through your mind, is it worth it to untangle it? Is it worth it to get it to a point where it's useful again? It's one thing when it's Christmas lights. It's one thing when it's phone cords. But listen to me. Sometimes we look at people, and you look at individuals in your life and relationships with those people that have become a tangled mess. It's a tangled mess with somebody that you work with to the point that you just go, you know what, I think I may just pretend like they don't exist right? It's a tangled mess with my next door neighbor. It's a tangled mess with my roommate. And so you know what? I may just pretend like they're not around and maybe I start looking in a different direction. Listen to me. Sometimes even with your spouse or your kids or your parents, you start to look at it from the perspective of this is a tangled mess. This is a minefield of a situation. Would it be better for me just to move on and to do something else? Now listen to me. Our God specializes in the complicated. Do you hear me? Our God specializes in the complicated, and he loves to untangle these messes, and it ends up a testimony of his greatness. There are some times when the best thing you can do, the godliest thing you can do is walk away, but it's been my experience that when we're in those relationships that we have so much investment in, God loves to peel back the layers and put us into a useful, complete state once again. If you're taking notes, look with me if you will, 2 Samuel Chapter 17, and we're going to read verses 24 through 27 to start and see just how big a mess the country was in. You ready to look at this? It says, so David went to Mahanim, 
And Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. So Absalom appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Underline, he appointed Amasa um, in place of Joab. So Joab has been David's commander of the army almost since the very, very beginning. So now that the country has split, all of a sudden you have Absalom going, well, somebody's got to be my commander. And there's nobody stronger who's with me than Amasa. Now look at what happens here. He's in place of Joab, but watch all this tangled mess. Amasa was the son of a man named Jether, an Israelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, the sister of Zeruiah, the mother of who? Abab, right? It says the Israelites and Absalom camped in Gilead, or camped in the land of Gilead. Underline, by the way, daughter of Nahash. Now look at what happens next in verse 27. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, son of who? Son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Makir, son of Emil uh, from Lodabar, and Barzilia, uh, the Gilead from Regalim. All right? Now, by the way, this is going to be stumped the pastor on a bunch of these names today. Just go with me. All right? So here's the picture. Notice that you've got daughter of Nahash on one side, you got son of Nahash on the other. You got Joab on one side, and then you got mother of Joab on the other side. What this picture is, is that this split in the country is ideological and not geographical in nature. This is a situation where they can't divide north and south. It has gotten so complicated. Houses are split in two, families are divided on the issue. Sound familiar? Doesn't isn't that interesting? Ideological divide that's taking place. And I'm telling you, you sit and you look at the mess and you go, is it worth untangling? 2 Samuel 17, 18, 19, and 20, scream to us. It is absolutely worth untangling the mess. Amen? If you don't take anything else away from today, I hope that you're able to take that. God is willing to help us untangle the mess that this world is in because it puts a big spotlight on the cross and it gives him glory. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? God is supremely equipped to simplify our messiest situations. God is supremely equipped to simplify our messiest situations. There are times when God chooses to go in a different direction, but God is consistently and constantly able to clean up whatever mess it is that we are in, and in most cases, whatever mess it is that you have made. God is supremely gifted. It's why scripture says that God works all things together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. You know what that means? That means that in a mess of a situation that we form, if there's any good in it, God will find it and he will use it for his glory and his namesake. Amen. That means if you are in a relationship with someone in your community, if you're in a relationship with someone in your family where it has just gotten so messy, somebody you work with, it's gotten so messy, we can take part in God's plan to untangle that mess. If you're taking notes, that's our big million dollar question today. How do we take part in God's plan to untangle the world's messes? How do we take part in God's plan to untangle the world's messes? Now, I got a little disclaimer for you, okay? The eternal consequences of our sin can only be untangled by Jesus. Can I say that to you real quick? The eternal consequences of our sin can only be untangled by Jesus. He's the only one that can die for our sins, and he's the only one that can atone for the mess that has been made. But 
we have the ability to come alongside the plan of Almighty God and be part of the untangling and the diffusing process. Three very, very simple points today. Each one of them is only one word, which is a feat for Waterfront. Usually your points are like eight words long, all right? One word today for each of the points, and hopefully the Lord will speak to you. Are you ready? Now look at 2 Samuel 17, and let's read verses 27 through 29, all right? So here we have this situation. Everything's a mess. David's on the run. Absalom's putting the army together. But man, there's families that are divided through this. Verse 27. When David came to Mahanim, Shobi the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, Makir son of Amil, uh, from Lodabar and Barzillia, and the Gilead from Rogalim. Look at this. They brought bedding. Now we're about to get a whole list of these things that have been brought to help out David's situation. Remember, his people are exhausted. They're tired. They've traveled through the night and they're on the run. uh, And Absalom has gathered the troops to kill them. Look at what it says. Notice all these different little things. This group shows up and they brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, Beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become hungry and tired and thirsty in the desert. Underline hungry and tired and thirsty in the desert. Now stop right there for just a minute. When it comes to the tangled mess that this world is in, one of the best things we can do to diffuse the world's issues and problems is number one, to operate in generosity. Write down generosity. Here's what's interesting. It doesn't just say they show up, saw they were hungry, and they brought bread and water. Notice that everything is listed here to the point that it's like they brought pottery and they brought cheese and they brought lentils and they brought beans. Why in the world is it important not just to say they brought food for them and something to eat it with? Because in this circumstances, it's so dire that these families showed up seeing thousands of people that are on the run, refugees from the land, from the palace at this point, and they show up and they go, you know what? We know that it's difficult for you right now. We know that this is an unthinkable time. And because of that, we are giving out of the abundance of what we have, and it causes peace to spread across David's family. Listen, generosity When we feel like we're backed into a corner and we feel like the world is crashing down around us and everything is a mess, the blessing we have, we tighten our grip on and it makes us go, you know what, in this day and time, in what we're navigating, I got to hold on to what I got and I got to defend it viciously. The problem is for unity and peace to go out, when we are generous with what God has given to us, it causes a peace to spread about even amongst those who are our enemies. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? When we outgive people's expectations, we almost always gain their full attention. When we outgive people's expectations, we almost always gain their full attention. I don't tell this story very often. Um, it's a tough story for us to tell. I usually can tell the story about, uh, some of you know, like we talked about a second ago, when we planted waterfront, my dad got sick uh, right on the, uh, the last day that we were in Lubbock, Texas. That was when he complained of stomach pains where it would turn into uh, his pancreatic cancer. But the piece I don't really talk about usually is what happened earlier on in that week. The enemy threw everything but the kitchen sink at us to try to get us not to move here from Texas to plant waterfront. Um, my son, on Monday of that week, we had to pack up the uh, house on Monday and Tuesday, 
And then the plan was to sign on the sale of our house on Wednesday and then move to D.C. on Sunday. And so all of a sudden, we're on Monday. It's like the critical day for us to pack. And then all of a sudden, my wife calls and she goes, um, I think Jack needs to go to the hospital. I said, what are you talking about? She said, he's huffing and puffing. He was two years old. She said, he's huffing and puffing. She goes, I keep asking him if he's okay, and he won't answer me. Well, we didn't know this at the time, but Jack had autism, has autism. And so we didn't get him diagnosed until he was five. And so because of that, he's not able to vocalize what he's going through. We just see him huffing and puffing. Well, Autumn says, I'm going to take him to the emergency room. And I'm like, are you sure? I said, is it that bad? Because I said, these are two really important days for us, these next two days. Well, praise God, she didn't listen to this idiot, and she took him to the hospital. They take him in, and his heart rate was a sustained 180 beats a minute. And so he just working and working and working, just huffing and puffing. And I'll never forget, it turns out, some of you know this, about a year ago, uh, Zeke had the exact same thing happen, our, our four-and-a-half-year-old. There's a type of virus that just hits Randall's men, and it causes us to, to have struggles breathing. And so Jack has this struggle. They take him in to pediatric ICU, and then all of a sudden they're talking with us because his heart rate's so high about them sedating him so that he can then come down. And I don't care who you are. When they talk, start talking about sedating your two-year-old so they can breathe, I mean, I'm telling you, it just scares you half to death. And so here we are in the hospital, plus we got the moving trucks coming, and nothing is packed. I mean, packed, I mean basic stuff is packed, but we still have two days of work to do. And all of a sudden, we're sitting there like, we're exhausted. We want to stay here with Jack. Neither one of us wanted to leave his side. And then all of a sudden, my phone buzzes in my pocket. It's my dad. He said, don't worry about packing. We got it. I said, you and mom can't do it all. He said, I didn't say me and your mother. He said, the church knows what's going on. And he said, they're all showing up to help you pack. Hey, everything. And the place was a mess. You know how it is before you move? They didn't just pack it up. They cleaned up the house for us. And my aunt, who was our realtor as well, at the very end, my aunt called and she said, they forgot one thing. She said, it was in your contract that you would clean the oven before you left. And she said, I'm going over. I'm going to turn it on. She goes, we'll get the oven cleaned for you too. And my own aunt scrubbed the oven so that it was ready for us to sell. We literally went back and forth from ICU to sign the paperwork to sell the house. We, went, we traded off spots at ICU during that time. The generosity of our people. We got to see pictures. Dad wanted us to know everybody that helped. I'm telling you, just like the list we read in 2 Samuel 17, I'm telling you, we remember those that took the time to help us. It wasn't just a normal day either. It was during the week when they had work. They showed up to help, and I will never forget. One of our former board members, a guy named Scott Hicks. Scott Hicks, many of you know him. Scott shows up like Santa Claus at ICU. He's got all these toys for Jack. He knew that for a two-year-old, it's going to be important if he was trapped to a hospital bed for days, that he have something to mess around with and to do. I still vividly remember the toys being delivered to ICU, and we still have some of them in our nursery. I tell you that to say this. Generosity, generosity is very memorable. It wasn't just some random stranger showed up and gave us food and water. It's let me tell you exactly who it was. And they gave beans and lentils. They gave pottery for us to use. They loved us lavishly. They even brought cheese for us to eat. Thousands of us, refugees marching along. And look at what they did to love us so lavishly. For some of you, the culture says, hold on to what you got. Don't let nobody take it from you. You realize that's one of the reasons why we're in the straits that we're in. God blesses us 
so that we might bless others. Amen? Doesn't mean you're not smart with what you got, but you don't own it. You manage the blessings that God's given you. By the way, look with me, if you will, Proverbs chapter 11. Save your spot. If you're one who struggles with holding on to what you've got, Proverbs chapter 11, uh, verse 25, is a great little verse to memorize. Are you ready for this? Here's what it says. Proverbs eleven twenty five. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be what? Refreshed. What a powerful word for us to remember. Whenever we see someone who is in need and we see that we are able to help that individual, it refreshes us to refresh them. To love them lavishly in the moment of difficulty. By the way, it's not in your notes, but verse 26 is also just as powerful. Look at 26. It says, people curse the man who hoards grain, but blessing crowns him who is willing to sell. Can I tell you what I love about that verse? It doesn't say blesses him who just gives it all away. The picture here is there is hatred for the person that when someone else is not just in want, but in need, and we look at them and go, I'm not even willing to negotiate with you. The picture in this passage is that there there is a burden that comes to you, that there is a curse that falls upon you when you're not even willing to negotiate with someone, when you have the ability to give and they are not in want, but they are in desperate need in front of you. If the Lord has revealed need to you and there's something you can do, it will refresh you if you help and it will curse you if you don't. It begs the question, do you love others lavishly? And when did you last give big? You love others lavishly. And when did you last give big? Now, some of you are like, I knew the preacher's going to talk about giving today. All right? Just for the record, if that's what you read in today, you should give lavishly to the church. But this goes for every aspect of your life. Giving lavishly. When you see a need, when the Lord reveals that to you, a specific need, and you have the ability to do something, it refreshes you to refresh them. I love that that word refresh is used there too. It's just like, ah, right? You ever just felt nasty? I was trapped on a plane for many, many hours this week. Again, Austin and back, got to hang out in the Charlotte Air Airport, which by the way, was way bigger than I thought it would be. You know what I mean? Hanging out in the Charlotte Airport. But, but if you've had delayed flights before, and every single flight I had was delayed, and uh, not for weather, it was all for, for, lack of, for lack of employees. And so I'm telling you, this whole week, you're sitting there and you're in the airport. Can I tell you what I did not feel? Refreshed, all right? Did not feel refreshed sitting in the airport, crammed into that middle seat on the plane, right? You don't feel refreshed. And then all of a sudden, after all that time, you get off the plane and, ah, that sweet, smoggy DC air never smelled so good, right? Listen, it refreshes you. It refreshes us to give out of our abundance when someone else is in desperate need. The world tells you, you don't owe them nothing. Keep it for yourself. God can't bless you with anything new if your hands are closed around what you have. Blessed to be a blessing. Let's look at the next part. Flip back over 2 Samuel, and let's look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 18. 2 Samuel 18. Oh, by the way, you compare David in 2 Samuel 11 to 2 Samuel 18. He wasn't born the man after God's own heart. 
he was crafted into the man after God's own heart. And you get to see that. There's a big comparison between when he should have gone off to war in 2 Samuel 11 and, uh, and, and uh, then committed adultery with Bathsheba versus 2 Samuel 18 with the way he handles the army here. Look at what happens. 2 Samuel 18, starting in verse 1. So David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them command of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent the troops out, a third under Joab, commander of the military, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, been with him since the beginning of Zeruiah, then a third under Ittai the Gittite. You can go back and listen to a, a sermon that I did in the podcast previously uh, on Ittai the Gittite. I mean, these are the best of the best right here. It says the king then told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. Underline, I myself will surely march out with you. David is not a young man at this point. He's an older man. And he looks at the group of soldiers and says, you know what? I'm acknowledging. I got us into this mess in the first place back in 2 Samuel 11. When I let you guys march out to war, king should be with his men. And instead, I was messing around on the rooftop. He's letting them know that's not me anymore. This is my family mess. This is my country mess that I've put together, that I've uh, allowed to happen. And I I'm marching out with you. It's my mess, and I want to help us clean it up. Look at what happens next. This is so powerful. It says, verse 3, But the men said, You can't go out with us. If we're forced to flee, they won't care about us. He said, even if half of us die, they won't care. But you're worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. Stop right there for just a minute. This is not the men saying, Oh, David, don't worry about it. The men look at David, and they go, You don't understand. They said, we are against King Absalom now. They said, you've left. They said, if they kill you, then they'll kill all of us and kill all of our families once you're the one who's dead. They said, the last thing we need is some random stray arrow hitting you when you're standing behind the men. He says, look, we love you, David, but you can't do this. This is a battle that you can't fight. We are going to have to fight this for you, and you're going to have to trust us. But here's David. I want to march. I want to lead the charge, but he can't do it. The best thing he can do at this point is to stay back, but he doesn't go to the rooftop of the palace again. There's not a palace for him to go to. He doesn't stand at a distance. Watch what he does here in verse 4. It says, so the king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king did what? He stood beside the gate. Underline, he stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and in units of thousands. David, again, remember, 2 Samuel 11, I'm on the balcony, not even seeing you off. I don't really care whether or not you live or die because honestly, I'm the king. I'm the decision maker. David goes to men and says, let me lead you on the field of battle. They look at him and say, you can't do that. If you get hit, then we all get killed. So David goes, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stand at the mouth of the tunnel as you run out onto the field. Instead of going up to the owner's box, David says, let me high five you and encourage each and every one of you as you go out to fight for my family and our country. You see the difference between the two? It starts with the generosity of that wonderful community that helps with the pottery and the food. And then David... How do we clean up the mess? How do we take part in God cleaning up the mess? Number two is humility. Humility. David can't be on the field playing. He's retired. He can't go back to the owner's box. It'll be disconnected and it's his mess. Instead, he says, well, if I can do nothing but encourage you, then I will stand at the gate and high five each one of you as you walk out. Over the years... I've gotten to do some chapels for some different sports teams. That was one of the things that my dad got to do a bunch. And so I, I got to break in because of him. When you do a chapel for a college football team, 
There is so much money on the line in those games. You're just getting to see a glimpse of it with the way all this new NIL stuff is playing out. I mean, I'm telling you, jobs are on the line. Education is on the line. I mean, these universities have, I mean, tens of millions of dollars invested in the way these games go, not just the season, but in the way the games go. And when you do the chapel, you come in and you share, usually the morning, you'll share with the team, you get to coach them up a little bit and point them to scripture. And if you do a good job, okay, you don't get paid for doing the chapels. Usually you get a ticket. You get a ticket to the game. But if you did a really good job, then the coach looks over and goes, hey, instead of being in the stands, you want to come hang out on the sidelines with us for the game? That's not the coach trying to treat you like a big donor. That's the coach looking at you and saying, the message you preached resonated And I need you pacing the sidelines so that when the guys see you, they remember the lesson that you taught. If you teach a bad lesson, then they're like, hey, thanks for coming. Enjoy the stands, right? There you go. I want the kids as far away from what you just taught as possible. They look and they go, you mind standing on the sidelines? Owner's box is distant. There are people who do good things from the owner's box. But humility, humility is sitting there going, if I can cheer them on to victory, I don't just want to be someone in the stands. I don't just want to be someone distant in the owner's box. If I can better the team by walking around on the sidelines, pacing and reminding them that we are all behind them. You ever been on the sidelines for a game before? Man, the players on the field, it's deeply intense. With the sideline, there is a mood to the sidelines that is completely different from the stands and completely different from the owner's box. I'm telling you, for some of you, it's been a while If you can't be on the field, then you want to be in the owner's box. You feel like, what good would it do for me to just march around and pat people on the back? Sometimes that's the difference between true greatness and something that was lesser. So I loved the All-Star Game. Sports does this so well. I loved watching the Major League All-Star Game this last year. And there's a deal that they do now. One of the stations, I can't remember if it's Fox or who, but they have... David Ortiz, Big Poppy. Have y'all seen this? It's called Big Poppy in the House or Big Poppy in La Casa. All right. Have you seen Big Poppy in La Casa? <laughs> Big Poppy in La Casa is so much fun. You ought to go on YouTube and watch it. There's a couple of bad words in it. So that's why I'm not showing you a clip of it today. I'm describing it for you. So Big Poppy is the designated hitter for the Boston Red Sox who uh, hit, the, hit the, the big game winning home runs. And he's the one who really was used to break the curse of the Bambino for the Red Sox. And so anyway, Big Poppy, large in life. He's the first designated hitter to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, too. He's a heck of an athlete. But he's just so big. He's so funny. He's from Dominican Republic and just very, very happy, big personality. And so Big Poppy and Big Poppy and La Casa, it's all these all-star baseball players. Again, the best of the best in the world. And here they are uh, playing. And you watch the all-star game. Everybody's tight because they're trying to impress these other players that they feel like are just as good as they are. So it's really tense. Well, all of a sudden, Big Poppy in La Casa, he's the guy who can't be out on the field anymore. He's retired, and they've offered him big money to be up in the booth. But all these guys know who he is. So what do they do? They send him out, and he's got this microphone, this wireless mic, and he starts marching around through the dugout. It's hysterical. And you watch it. The guys are all just stoic, staring at the field as everything's going on. But then comes up Big Poppy, and he slaps him on the shoulder, and he goes, Hey, man! And he gets to Aaron Judge from the New York Yankees. Slaps him on the shoulder, and he goes, Hey, man, stop hitting the ball so hard. It's just, 
it hurts the ball so badly. Stop hitting the ball so hard. And he leans over and you watch Judge who's like this. And the smirk starts to form across his cheek. And you watch him just melt right there in front of Big Poppy. Then you've got these Dominican guys who don't speak English their first language. And you watch them and they see Big Poppy go up. Again, very, very stoic. And you watch it. The smirk comes across their face and they just melt as he comes to it. Now here's the thing about baseball. The looser you are, the better you play. He's not going in there just for the show. He's going there so that the teams will improve. You watch it. Everything begins to melt. He finally gets to Castillo, who's probably the best pitcher in Major League Baseball this year. Castillo's going to be the one that they try to get to save the game at the end in the All-Star game. And you watch it. Castillo's sitting there with his arms crossed. Big Boppy walks up. He puts his arm around him. And he goes, how would you pitch to me if I was there in the batter's box today? And Castillo's looking at him. He was like, uh, probably throw you high and inside. I'd probably do this. And you watch and Big Poppy goes, man, I'd take you deep. And he shoves him like that. And he walks <laughs> off on the other side. And you watch it. Castillo just breaks and just starts cracking up laughing. And then here's what's crazy. The team played better after that. They loosened up. And it was a much better game after Big Poppy just walked through the dugout for about 95 seconds. I mean, it was crazy with David. David's sitting here going, you know what? If I can't be out on the field leading and I am not going back to the rooftop of the palace ever stinking again, that cannot be the way that I lead. Then let me stand at the tunnel. You're going to clean up my mess and I will in humility encourage and lead through humble leadership. If you're taking notes, write this down. Regularly be willing to serve in situations below your pay grade. Regularly be willing to serve in situations below your pay grade. Now, I want you to notice this. David doesn't demand that he lead them on the field. When they tell him the reasoning for him not to do that, the great leader, David, steps back and goes, you know what? You're right. You're right. I can't go. A stray arrow could cause death for all of us. David steps back and says, I hear your point, but I still am going to find a place where I can serve. Save your spot there in 2 Samuel and flip open to Romans 12, verse 16. This is a great verse in D.C. to memorize. Romans 12, verse 16. It says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. What a beautiful verse for us to remember. Living in harmony means not feeling like you are better than someone else. That's a beautiful word. If there is anyone that comes to mind, if I say this, who are you better than? If someone comes to your mind, then you have a pride problem. And there have been points in my life where I'm being honest, even as a preacher, it's one or two people that all of a sudden come to mind and you go, I got to put myself in my place. None of us are better than anyone else. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're either saved or we're not That's the division. Jesus himself said at the end of time, it's sheep and goats. Either your children and your father in heaven or your children and your father the devil. That's the only divide in humanity. At the end of the day, if you start to feel like someone is lesser than you, then there's a problem in your spirit that needs to be addressed. Amen? It begs the question, when's the last time you stood and cheered for someone the world considers beneath you? When's the last time you stood and cheered for someone that the world considers beneath you. You stood at the tunnel and you high-fived them as they headed out to fight the battle. And then we get verse 5. I love verse 5 here. Flip open to 2 Samuel 18 and let's read verse 5. It says, So the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai. He's commanding the three commanders 
that are over the thousands that are going out. Look at this. Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. Underline, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Stop right there for just a minute. As he's high-fiving everybody and sending them out, the troops are gathered together and don't miss this. He doesn't look at the commanders and go, take it easy on my boy. Read between the lines. Remember the whole way we started this? It's brother against brother. It's brother against sister. It's son against father. This is a divided nation ideologically, not geographically. And so you know what he says there? He looks and says, don't forget the king is still my son. Don't forget that the men you're fighting on the other side are still your brothers. They're still your countrymen. He doesn't look at him and say, take it easy on him and go ahead and lose the battle. Take the dive. No, he comes back and says, don't operate in cruelty because at the end of the day, we want to see the nation unified. It's a beautiful picture. And in fact, just spoiler alert, the way that the Lord uses David to unify the country after an ideological split is so applicable to this day in what we're navigating. We got three more weeks until we get there. I want to encourage you to stick with us. It's a beautiful end to this story. But David, he says, here's the deal. Instead of responding in cruelty because they've responded cruelly to you, absorb it and be merciful. If you're taking notes, that's our third point. How do we assist in cleaning up the mess? God's doing the cleaning, but we've got to be generous. We've got to be humble. And number three, we have to exhibit mercy. We have to exhibit mercy. No movie describes that better than the Karate Kid. Did you see the Karate Kid? What is Cobra Kai's deal, right? What is it? No mercy. No mercy, right? Here's the deal. No mercy. That is the world's way. That is the world's way. Mercy. Mercy absorbs the blow and then it ends with you. When you are able to take that hit and you go, you know what? I'm sending it right back. When we do that, there is no peace. It just can continue like that over and over and over. But when we absorb the blow and we let it stop and we let it die with us, That's a very godly place to be. So back in the day, uh, my dad used to travel. And uh, when I was very young, he would also teach Bible studies early, early in the morning. And uh, I'll never forget, my mom would sleep in. My brother and sister and I, I'm the oldest. And so my brother and sister and I were young. And dad would sometimes come in and he wouldn't want to wake my mom up. So he'd go in the guest bedroom, grab the comforter. And he would lay out on the floor. We had a really small couch. And so he would lay on the floor, pull one of the pillows from the couch, and he'd cover himself up with the comforter, and he'd lay there. Well, when we'd wake up in the morning, we'd see him laying on the floor, and we'd tiptoe in, and we'd go, Dad, are you awake? Dad, are you awake? And then sometimes you'd see it. He'd pull the covers over his head, probably because he was just trying to go back to sleep. But he'd pull the covers over his head, and then all of a sudden, he'd be laying flat, And we'd watch it like one of those horror movies. The blanket would raise up. And here's the deal. We called that game Bronchi, all right? It was probably a blend of Brontosaurus and Brachiosaurus, okay? But dad would be completely under the blanket, underneath the comforter, and he'd raise up, 
and then we were supposed to go and slay Bronchi. We were supposed to go uh, and, and uh, tackle and take down Bronchi. Kind of looked like a woolly mammoth there underneath, uh, the, uh, underneath the deal. And so um, we would go and we would just start wailing on him as hard as we could. Little kids just punching and punching and punching. And we'd punch him and he would absorb the blow. Well, then my brother, he would go, get the secret weapon. And so I would go and I would put my hair underneath the faucet and get my hair all wet. And then I would shake off like a dog and I would shake onto my dad. He would be like, what are you doing, son? The blanket's all wet. And then I'd say to my brother, get secret weapon. And he would run into his room, get the socks, break them out like nunchucks. And then he would hit dad over and over again with those socks. It wasn't like there was a bar of soap, like it was prison. All right. It was just normal socks. All right. And then one day my brother had this idea. He thought, you know what would be really good? I should just get a baseball bat. That would be a much better idea than just trying this with socks. I mean, why have we not thought of that before? So Sam goes and gets the bat. Bam, it hits dad and it causes him to get a bloody nose. And so all of a sudden dad's like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> you know, puts the, pulls the blanket over and goes, what are you doing? And so then all of a sudden it looked in that day, it registered. It was like, there's a person under there, right? Okay, it's just been a game up until this point, but all of a sudden it's a person. Here's the thing, absorbing the blow, but then we saw what we were doing to that person, and then it caused us to calm down and to be different. As silly as this sounds, don't miss it. That's mercy. You don't take it just because you deserve to take it. That's wicked. Don't do that. But when you intentionally absorb the blow, and you look them square in the eye, and you go, I could swing back, but I'm not going to. This dies with me. That might change your marriage. By the way, we're not justifying physical abuse today. I'm talking about when you throw those barbs back and forth at one another, those hateful words that some of you should never, ever stink and say. And what if you were the one who absorbed the barb and you stopped and went, I could fire back, but I'm not going to. We're not going to go down that path. Can I tell you what mostly happens when that takes place? The spouse sees you absorb it. And it causes them a moment to pause. It will not solve all your problems, but it does cause a moment to pause where they go, yeah, I was out of line in saying that. I shouldn't have said that. Or it at least causes the problem to go down to a four instead of escalating to a 10. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? When we model mercy without downplaying the weight of sin, we clearly reflect the attitude of Jesus. When we model mercy without downplaying the weight of sin, we clearly reflect the attitude of Jesus. One final verse, and we'll call it a day today. Look at Colossians chapter 3, and I want to read verse 13 to you. Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to read verse 13. Here's what it says, another great verse to memorize. It says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have or may have against one another, for as the Lord, or forgive as the Lord forgave you powerful thing for us to remember. The way that we interact in the world as believers in Jesus Christ should be walking in step in unison with the way our God has treated us, with the way Christ has modeled how we should live. Begs our final question, and it's a doozy. Are you ready? Are you eager to others crawl when they mess up? Are you eager to make others crawl when they mess up? If so, I'm really glad I'm not married to you, okay? If so, I'm really glad I don't work for you. If so, I'm very, very glad that I'm not your next-door neighbor, all right? And I certainly am glad I'm not your son or daughter. Now, look at me. There are times that you have to punish.
okay? Especially with your kiddos. There are times that punishment is the biblical requirement. But listen to me. In these interpersonal relationships, it is never okay to glory in making others crawl. In fact, true punishment when offered, it's got to be a brokenness that you go through in the process where they truly understand, I choose mercy first. It's why Jesus, more than any other scripture, he quotes, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, Hosea 6.6. Numerous times in the Gospel of Matthew, he quotes Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's the heart of the Son of God. Mercy should be a place that we go, not to gloss over and pretend like something didn't happen, but to truly understanding the weight of sin, absorb it and say, this dies with me. It's not going to continue. Thanks for listening today. I told you this series is crazy. We're creeping through, but there's some good stuff on the horizon, and we're about to see some great victory. Are you ready? Let's bow our heads for prayer. (laughs)